You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Peter, I'd like to welcome you all to City Lights. Before we begin, if you are carrying upon your person one of these eavesdropping devices, I encourage you to deactivate while you're doing so. I will do so as well, and I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing here at City Lights. You know, we're a publishing house as well as a bookstore, as you can see over there. It says City Lights Poetry Publications. Well, in every room of this store, you will have a case like that. Some of them are poetry, some of them are current events. We've been publishing anywhere from 12 to 15 books a year. We also have a foundation that publishes books. So check out our website. Um, Check out all the really cool stuff we're releasing as a publishing house. And then you'll also get to see what we do as a bookstore. You get to hear about really cool events like this one. Coming up at the end of the month, we have Rachel Kushner. I don't know how many of you read uh, Flamethrowers. Uh, We've got her in conversation. She'll be reading excerpts as well. In May, um, a Don Carpenter tribute. I'm a really huge fan of Don Carpenter. He wrote some very edgy kind of noir fiction. He wrote Hard Rain Falling, and he's kind of kind of looks at the West Coast in a very kind of underground sort of dark way. Um, Anne Lamott will be involved with that, as will Peter Coyote and a host of other people. It's going to be off-site over at the uh, California Book Club, and it's a free event, so I encourage you all to please check it out. That's going to be at the beginning of May. Um, so very, very delighted to have Jeff Vandermeer here with us uh, for many, many reasons. Um, he's an award-winning novelist, editor. Uh, his fiction has been translated into 20 languages and has appeared in the Library of the Americas American Fantastic Tales, as well as in multiple kind of year's best anthologies. He's written nonfiction for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian and so on and so forth. He's also founding editor and publisher of Ministry of Whimsy Press. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that too and what that does. So tonight we are celebrating Annihilation. (laughs) I just love being able to say that. (laughs) Tonight we are celebrating Annihilation, which is the first volume in a wonderful trilogy uh, I say wonderful because, you know, I'm the kind of person that really loves dystopian, apocalyptic, anything noirish. That's me. Um, so we're really very excited about that. Also, the fact that, that Sean McDonald is a very close friend of the store, is wonderful editor over at SOSG, had a say in this. And you will see, it is just a really gorgeous artifact. And I think if you really, really love, like, also affordable, um, And this, as I said, is part of three. The second will be Authority, which is going to be published in May. And the third will be Acceptance, which will be coming later in the year. Uh, I'm not going to say much more, except that we're really delighted to have him here with us. Jeff Van. Thank thank you very much to City Lights uh, and also FSG for sending, sending me on this tour. Uh, this is the, the last stop on the West Coast part of the tour. I go to New York City next. And um, I have experienced a few things during the tour uh, that have been unusual. Uh, the first was on the plane here, uh, to Seattle rather, before I drove down. Uh, there was a guy sitting next to me in the, the exit row. It was one of those uncomfortable kind of straitjacket exit rows where you're on an island and you have no escape. And he was fine until he started drinking. Uh, and then after he started drinking, he discovered I was an author and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to Seattle to read at a bookstore. 
and uh, he wasn't a reader, and he said, they're sending you to a bookstore to read to one person? <laughs> I think he thought, talked to like the bookstore manager or something, that I was just going around to bookstores. And I said, well, in theory, more than one, not including myself, hopefully. <laughs> Um, and then from there it proceeded to get worse. At one point he actually stood up, shouted that I had adopted him, and that was great except that now I was selling him and that was wrong. Um, and the, uh, the attendants had to kind of put him down. <laughs> um, I also drove through snow flurries for the first time, which was interesting. Um, I tried to drown Annihilation in a park. I thought it would be really cool to have it at the bottom of a tidal pool and take a photograph but Annihilation apparently floats. <laughs> also, if you do that, inevitably someone like a park ranger will come along and go, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? What are you doing with that title pool and that book? Um, so I had to m quickly move on from, from, from that, that idea. Um, <laughs> I also was given a great uh, single malt to pair with Annihilation, uh, which, is, which was actually a wonderful thing. Uh, I went uh, to Pointe Bonita, uh, uh, through tunnels and over suspension bridges in, in, in gusting rain. You may have seen that on, on Twitter today. And finally, and I can't, I'm not going to explain this, I got involved in smuggling pugs past a uh, checkpoint in Santa, in Santa Cruz yesterday. I'm not going to explain that at all. So anyway, thank you very much for coming out. Um, the Southern Reach series is about this strange place called Area X, which uh, appears to be a pristine wilderness, but something very strange is, is going on there. And the Southern Reach is another element of this. They're the secret government agency that's sending in these expeditions. And for 30 years, they've been sending in expeditions, and um, I find this hilarious. A lot of people find this very disturbing, <laughs> have been unable to solve what's going on. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's hilarious. It's a laugh riot. Um, and, and, and so uh, most of the expeditions have, have come to real grief and, and, and harm, and they've discovered that the more that you use names and personal associations and the more you use modern technology, the worse off you are, that somehow those are great entry points for whatever it is that's going on in Area X. And so Annihilation tells the story of the 12th expedition, and um, it's a biologist who's a narrator and then three other characters. And the other thing I should probably say is that the setting is m maybe more realistic than you might realize because it's basically the hiking trail that I've done over the last 15 or 16 years in North Florida. Uh, so it's very easy to write about the setting. These strange things have not happened there. I, I was, however, charged by both an otter and a boar while out there. Um, being charged by an otter is fodder for a comic novel, so it's not in the book. Um, being charged by a boar is more dramatic, and therefore that scene transformed is in, is in the novel. And actually the strangest thing in real life is being charged by a boar from a very long distance gives you a lot of time to talk to your hiking companion about what you're going to do when it finally arrives. And that is really the worst the, 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 absolutely the part I would not have anticipated um, with regard to the board charging. Anyway, so I'm going to read uh, from Annihilation, and the problem with Annihilation is that there's spoilers like every three pages. So I can either do redacted, I can say redacted or bleep, um, but instead of doing that I've, I've done a kind of edited version of this that takes out some of the spoilers. So it may seem like you're getting a lot of spoilers, but you're only getting about a tenth of the spoilers. <laughs> and what I'm going to try and do is read a little bit of the stuff that's like the flashback, where the flashbacks where the biologist is talking about her, her history before going on the expedition, and then a part where the expedition is kind of dissolved and she's gone up to the top of this lighthouse looking for someone, and instead of finding someone, she finds redacted, 
I'm not going to tell you that part. And in Redacted, she finds another Redacted <laughs> thing that startles the heck out of her. And then that part will proceed from there. But first, I'm going to do the flashback scene. Then after this, I'm going to regale you or torment you with excerpts from authority and acceptance uh, out of context, because that's really the best way to experience them at this point, since you can't, <laughs> can't read the books. And that way, it'll be harder for this to spoil that experience when you, when you actually do. So. At some point during our relationship, my husband began to call me the ghost bird, which was his way of teasing me for not being present enough in his life. It would be said with a kind of creasing at the corner of his lips that almost formed a thin smile, but in his eyes I could see the reproach. If we went to bars with his friends, one of his favorite things to do, I would volunteer only what a prisoner might during an interrogation. They weren't my friends, not really, but also I wasn't in the habit of engaging in small talk, nor in broad talk, as I like to call it. I didn't care about politics, except in how politics impinged upon the environment. I wasn't religious. All of my hobbies were bound up in my work. I lived for the work, and I thrilled with the power of it and the power of that focus, but it was also deeply personal. I didn't like to talk about my research. I'm sure my husband's friends found me taciturn or worse. I enjoyed the bars, but not for the same reasons as my husband. I loved the late night slow burn of being out, my mind turning over some problem, some piece of data, while able to appear sociable but still existing apart. He worried too much about me, though, and my need for solitude aided his enjoyment of talking to his friends. I would see him trail off in mid-sentence, gazing at me for some sign of my own contentment, as off to the side I drank my whiskey neat. Ghost bird, he would say later, did you have fun? I'd nod and smile. But fun for me was sneaking off to peer into a tidal pool. Sustenance for me was tied to ecosystem and habitat, the sudden realization of the interconnectivity of living things. Observation had always meant more to me than interaction. He knew this, I think, but I never could express myself that well to him, although I did try and he did listen. And yet I was nothing but expression in other ways. My sole gift or talent, I believe now, was that places could impress themselves upon me and I could become a part of them with ease. Even a bar was a type of ecosystem, if a crude one. And to someone entering, someone without my husband's agenda, that person could have seen me sitting there and had no trouble imagining that I was happy in my silence, would have had no trouble believing that I fit in. Ghost bird, do you love me? He whispered once in the dark, even though he was the one who would become the ghost. Ghost bird, do you need me? I loved him, but I did not need him, and I thought that was the way it was supposed to be. A ghost bird might be a hawk in one place, a crow in another, depending on the context. The sparrow that shot up into the blue sky one morning might transform mid-flight into an osprey the next. This was the way of things here. There were no reasons so mighty that they could override the desire to be in accord with the tides and the passage of seasons and the rhythms underlying everything around me. <clears throat> Excuse me, and so that's what comes after Redacted when she has this discovery. <laughs> and then she eventually emerges from Redacted in the lighthouse. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. It's just going to be Redacted, I'll try. It was later than I had thought when I emerged from below. The sea was ablaze with light, but nothing beautiful here fooled me anymore. Human lives had poured into this place over time, volunteered to become party to exile and worse. 
Under everything lay the ghastly presence of countless desperate struggles. Why did they keep sending us? Why did we keep going? So many lies, so little ability to face the truth. Area X broke people, I felt, although it hadn't yet broken me. After being in that space for so long, I needed fresh air and the feel of the wind. I dropped what I'd taken into a chair and opened the sliding door to walk out onto the circular ledge. The wind tore at my clothes. The sudden chill was cleansing and the view even better. I could see forever from there. But after a moment, some instinct or premonition made me look straight down, past the remains of the defensive wall to the beach, part of which was half hidden by the curve of the dune, the height of that wall, even from that angle. Emerging from that space was a foot and the end of a leg amid a flurry of disrupted sand. I trained my binoculars on the foot. It lay unmoving, a familiar pant leg, a familiar boot with the laces double tied and even. I gripped the railing tight to counter a feeling of vertigo. I knew the owner of that boot. It was the psychologist. Everything I knew about the psychologist came from my observations during training. She had served both as a kind of distant overseer and in a more personal role as our confessor, except I had nothing to confess. Perhaps I had confessed more under hypnosis, but during our regular sessions, which I had agreed to as a condition of being accepted, I volunteered little. Now she sat propped up against a mound of sand, sheltered by the shadow of the wall, in a kind of broken pile. She was alone. I could see from her condition and the shape of the impact that she had jumped or been pushed from the top of the lighthouse. She probably hadn't quite cleared the wall, been hurt by it on the way down. What I couldn't understand is why she was still alive. Her jacket and shirt were covered in blood, but she was breathing and her eyes were open, looking out toward the ocean as I knelt beside her. She had a gun in her left hand, arm outstretched, and I gently took the weapon from her, tossed it to the side just in case. The psychologist did not seem to register my presence. I touched her gently on one broad shoulder, and then she screamed, lunged away, falling over as I recoiled. Annihilation, she shrieked at me, flailing in confusion. Annihilation, annihilation. The words seemed more meaningless the more she repeated it, like the cry of a bird with a broken wing. It's just me, the biologist, I said in a calm voice, even though she had rattled me. Just you, she said with a wheezing chuckle, as if I'd said something funny just you. As I propped her up again, I heard a kind of creaking groan and realized she had probably broken most of her ribs. Blood was seeping out around her stomach beneath the hand she had instinctively pressed down on that spot. You're still here, she said, surprised in her voice. But I killed you, didn't I? The voice of someone waking from dream or falling into dream. Not even a little bit. A rough wheeze again in the film of confusion leaving her eyes. Did you bring water? I'm thirsty. I did, and I pressed my canteen to her mouth so she could swallow a few gulps. Where's the surveyor, the psychologist asked in a gasp. Back at the base camp. Didn't like your company, the psychologist asked. Didn't like what you've become. A chill. I'm the same as always. The psychologist's gaze drifted out to sea again. I saw you, you know, coming down the trail toward the lighthouse. That's how I knew for sure you had changed. What did you see, I asked, to humor her. A cough accompanied by spittle. You were a flame, she said, and I had a brief vision of my brightness made manifest. 
You were a flame scorching my gaze, a flame drifting across the salt flats to the ruined village, a slow-burning flame, a will-o'-the-wisp, floating across the marsh and the dunes, floating and floating like nothing human but something free and floating. From the shift in her voice, I recognized that even now she was trying to hypnotize me. It won't work, I said. I'm immune to hypnotism now. Her mouth opened, then closed, then opened again. Of course you are. You were always difficult, she said, as if talking to a child. Was that an odd sense of pride in her voice? Perhaps I should have left her alone, let her die without providing any answers, but I could not find that level of grace within me. A thought occurred if I had looked so inhuman. Why didn't you shoot me dead as I approached? A frown, a true perplexity expressed through the network of wrinkles at the corners of her eyes, as if the memory were only coming through in fragments. I thought, I thought something was after me. I tried to shoot you and I couldn't, and then you were inside. Then I thought I saw something behind me coming toward me from the stairs, and I felt such an overwhelming fear I had to get away from it. So I jumped out over the railing. I jumped, as if she couldn't believe she had done such a thing. What did it look like, the thing coming after you? A coughing fit, words dribbling out around the edges. I never saw it. It was, it was never there, or I saw it too many times. I didn't believe any part of that fragmented explanation. I interpreted the frenzy of her dissociation as part of a need for control. She had lost control of the expedition, and so she had to find someone or something to blame her failure on. I tried a different approach. Why did you take the anthropologist down into the tunnel in the middle of the night? She hesitated, but I couldn't tell if it was from caution or because something inside her body was breaking down. Then she said, a miscalculation, impatience. I needed intel before we risked the whole mission. You mean the progress of the crawler? Yes, there's a crawler in there, also redacted. <laughs> she smiled wickedly. Is that what you call it, the crawler? Yes, and because I could tell you were already changing. I'm not changing, I shouted, an unexpected rage rising inside of me, a wet chuckle, a mocking tone. Of course you're not. You're just becoming more of what you've always been. And I'm not changing either. None of us are changing. Everything is fine. Let's have a picnic. If it was a disaster, you helped create it. I realized that as much as I mistrusted the psychologist personally, I had come to rely on her to lead the expedition. On some level, I was furious that she had betrayed us, furious that she might be leaving us now. You just panicked and you gave up. The psychologist nodded. That too, I did, I did. I should have recognized earlier that you'd changed. I should have sent you back to the border. But here we are. She grimaced, coughed out a thick wetness. I ignored the jab, changed the line of questioning. What does the border look like? That smile again. I'll tell you when I get there. What really happens when we cross over to Area X? Not what you might expect. What do we cross through? I felt as if I were getting lost again. There was a gleam in her eye now that I did not like that promised damage. How many of your memories do you think are implanted? The psychologist asked. How many of your memories of the world beyond the border are verifiable? It won't work on me, I told her. I'm sure of the here and the now, this moment and the next. I am sure of my past. That was the ghost bird's castle keep, and it was inviolate. It might have been punctured by the hypnosis during training, but it had not been breached. Of this, I was certain and would continue to be certain because I had no choice. I'm sure your husband felt the same way before the end, the psychologist said. I sat back on my haunches, staring at her. I wanted to leave her before she poisoned me, but I couldn't. 
Let's stick to your own hallucinations, I said. Describe the crawler to me. There are things you must see with your own eyes. You might get closer. You might be more familiar to it. Her lack of regard for the anthropologist's fate was hideous, but so was mine. What did you hide from us about Area X? Too general a question. I think it amused the psychologist even dying for me to so desperately need answers from her. Okay, then, what do the black boxes around our waist measure? Nothing. They don't measure anything. It's just a ploy to keep the expedition calm. No red light and no danger. What is the secret behind the tower? The tunnel? If you knew, do you think we would keep sending in expeditions? They're scared. The Southern Reach is scared. That is my impression. Then they have no answers, I said. I'll give you this scrap. The border is advancing. For now, slowly, a little bit more every year. In some ways you couldn't expect, but maybe soon it'll eat a mile or two at a time. The thought of that silenced me for a long moment. When you are too close to the center of a mystery, there is no way to pull back and see the shape of it entire. The black boxes might do nothing, but in my mind they were all blinking red. What did the first expedition really find? The psychologist grimaced, and not from her pain this time, but more as if she were remembering something that caused her shame. There's video from that expedition of a sort. The main reason no advanced tech was allowed after that. Video. The information didn't startle me somehow. I kept moving forward. What orders didn't you reveal to us? You're beginning to bore me, she said, and I'm beginning to fade a little. Sometimes we tell you more, sometimes less. They have their reasons. Somehow they felt made of cardboard as if she didn't quite believe in them. The sky was darkening and encroaching, the waves deepening, the surf making the shorebirds scatter on their stilt legs and then regroup as it receded. The sand seemed suddenly more porous around us. The meandering paths of crabs and worms continued to be written in, into its surface. A whole community lived here, was going about its business oblivious to our conversation, and where out there lay the seaward border. When I had asked the psychologist during training, she had said only that no one had ever crossed it, and I had imagined expeditions that just evaporated into mist and light and distance. A rattle had entered the psychologist's breathing, which was now shallow and inconsistent. Is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? I said, relenting. Leave me here when I die, she said, all of her fear now visible. Don't bury me, don't take me anywhere, leave me here where I belong. Is there anything else you're willing to tell me? We should have never come here. I should never have come here. The rawness in her tone hinted at a personal anguish that went beyond her physical condition. That's all. I've come to believe it is the one fundamental truth. Has anyone ever really come back from Area X? <laughs> not for a long time now, the psychologist said in a tired whisper, not really. But I don't know if she had heard the question. There were things I had to do after she died, even though I was running short of daylight, even though I did not like doing them. If she wouldn't answer my questions while alive, then she would have to answer some of them now. I took out my penknife and with great care cut away the left sleeve of her jacket and her shirt. From her collarbone down to her elbow, her arm had been colonized by a fibrous green-gold fuzziness. From the indentations and long rift running down her triceps, it appeared to have spread from a recent wound. Certain parasites in fruiting bodies could cause not just paranoia but schizophrenia, all too realistic hallucinations, and thus promote delusional behavior. I had no doubt now, 
that she had seen me as a flame approaching, that she had attributed her inability to shoot me to some exterior force, that she had been assailed by the fear of some approaching presence. If nothing else, the memory of the encounter with the crawler would, I imagined, have unhinged her to some degree. I cut a skin sample from her arm, along with some of the flesh beneath, and prodded it into a collection vial. Then I took another sample from her other arm. Once I got back to base camp, I would examine both. Careful to avoid contact with her shoulder, I then searched the psychologist's body. I found a tiny handgun strapped to her left calf and a letter in a small envelope folded up in her right boot. The psychologist had written a name on the envelope. At least it looked like her handwriting. The name started with an S. Was it her child's name, a friend, a lover? I had not seen a name or heard a name spoken aloud for months, and seeing one now bothered me deeply. It seemed wrong, as if it did not belong in Area X. A name was a dangerous luxury here. Sacrifices didn't need names. People who served a function didn't need to be named. In all ways, the name was a further and unwanted confusion to me, a dark space that kept growing and growing. I tossed the gun far across the sand, balled up the envelope, sent it after the gun. On some level, I was still angry at the psychologist. Finally, I searched her pants pockets. I found some change, a smooth worry stone, and a slip of paper. On the paper, I found a list of hypnotic suggestions that included induced paralysis, induced acceptance, and com compel obedience, each corresponding to an activation word or phrase. She must have been intensely afraid of forgetting which words gave her control over us to have written them down. Her cheat sheet included other reminders like surveyor needs reinforcement, an anthropologist's mind is porous. About me, she had only this cryptic phrase, silence creates a kind of violence. How insightful. The word annihilation was followed by help induce immediate suicide. We had all been given self-destruct buttons, but the only one who could push them was dead. And as you might imagine, things get really really awesome and amazing and happy <laughs> after that point. Um, <laughs> so if we have time, uh, I, I, I'm going to just read a very short excerpt. Uh, this is the first time I've read this anywhere or anyone's actually heard or you know been able to, to see it in any way uh, from both uh, Acceptance, the third novel, and uh, some snippets from Authority. And I'm going to end with the authority snippets because it makes more sense kind of to read this, this, this short bit from acceptance. Now, by the time that you, acceptance rolls around, you know there's this guy named Lowry who's kind of like was on an expedition, is now at Central, the place that controls the Southern Reach, and that he's a bit of a dick. <laughs> and uh, he has summoned the uh, current director in this, this scene uh, to his secret lair, more or less, uh, to, to have a conversation with her about how things are going in the Southern Reach. And um, I think that's pretty much all you need to know. Lowry's secret facility on a dreary part of the East Coast with gravel beaches and stark yellowing grass has been set up on the bones of an old military base. Here, Lowry has been perfecting his hypnosis and conditioning techniques, some would say brainwashing. From atop a mossy hill hollowed out for his command and control, he rules a strange world of decommissioned harbor mines lolling on the lawn below and rusting gun emplacements from wars fought 70 years before, still aimed at the sea. 
Lowry has had a replica of Area X's lighthouse built and a replica of the expedition base camp and even a hole in the ground meant to approximate the little known about the typographical, topographical anomaly. You knew this before you were summoned and in your imagination this false lighthouse, this false base camp was foreboding and almost supernatural in its, in its effect. But in truth, standing there with Lowry looking out across his domain through a long plate of tinted glass, you feel more as if you're staring at a movie set a collection of objects that without the animation of Lowry's paranoia, his projection of a story upon them are inert and pathetic. Not even a movie set, you realize, more like a seaside carnival in the winter in the off-season, when even the beach is a poem about loneliness. How lonely was Lowry out here, surrounded by all of this? Sit down and I'll get you a drink. Very Lowry, but you don't sit and politely decline the drink, staring out at the shore or the sea. No, well, I'll make you one anyway also very Lowry, and you're more tense than you were a moment before. The whole back plate of glass sealing off the room from behind is a mirror, projecting your images and protecting you from the truth that this isn't really a lounge, and you're not here by invitation but by order, that this is an interrogation room of sorts. The refined Lowry, so unlike the uncouth Lowry, has been spending a deliberate eternity prying ice cubes loose from a bowl into the glasses, one by one, clink by clink, opens a bottle of scotch with care and with a tap of the bottleneck against glass, pours out a fifth. Lowry bent over his task, letting the moment elongate further. The mane of golden hair, now silver, grown long, once he was just a Southern Reach employee, no longer an expedition member, the determined solid head on a thick neck, the landmarks of features upon a face that had served him well, craggy good looks like an astronaut, someone had once said, listing those attributes. Someone who has never seen the photographs of Lowry after the first expedition into Area X, Lowry gone somewhere no one else has ever gone. An honorable guy, charismatic and direct, even gone to fat a little, a thickness around the stomach, he retains that charm, even with a left eye prone to wandering, as if a tiny planet is straining out of alignment, being pulled to the side by the attraction of something just out of the frame. Those bright blue eyes, one scintilla more brilliant and all its charisma would be wasted, the determined nose, the resolute jaw, almost a parody like the coastline of a confident country, undermined by a stare too glacial. But there is just enough warmth in that gaze to preserve the rest of the illusion. There, done, he says, and you're nervous to the inverse of his calm and reverential care for the drinks. He turns a drink in each hand, dressed in his expensive dark blue suit, his gold-tipped dress shoes. He smiles, holds both drinks outstretched, the mo motion doubled, tripled by the mirror at his back, the gleam of perfect teeth, the wide politician's smile, a dangerous smile. The drink in his left hand smashes against the window near your head, shatters. As you recoil, sidestep, gaze never leaving Lowry, splinters of glass, dance around your skirt, needle your ankles. The window's bulletproof glass reinforced. It doesn't even reverberate. The drink in Lowry's right hand isn't even trembling, but then neither are you. Lowry's still smiling. He says, now that you've had your drink, maybe we can get the fuck down to it. <laughs> a little different in tone from Annihilation, just a tad. So I'm gonna need my volunteer from the audience for this part for the very end. Uh, I need someone to rub my head during these these, these last parts. It's just it's just a it's just a perk of being an author, you know. If you don't tweet that, please. 
So authority, um, I'm going to do out of context, and you can decide whether it's horrific or funny. There is a very deep vein of dark humor in authority because it's really about a dysfunctional agency, and I've worked for a lot of dysfunctional agencies. <laughs> so these are all little snippets that are out of context. This too had at one, not yet. <laughs> This, too, had at one time been new, perhaps sometime in the Cretaceous period, and the building had probably been there then in some form, reversed engineered so far into the past that you could still look out the windows and see dragonflies as big as vultures. The second book's really an expedition into the Southern Reach. Along the walls, at shoulder height, both rooms were lined with flaccid long black gloves that hung in a way that Control could only think of as dejected. They were huddled around the world's smallest conference table stool, on which Control had placed the plot pot with the living plant and the dead mouse. Very important part of the book. <laughs> then, in going through the files, he thought he detected, detected a faint murmur of the tone of the kinds of sloth-like yet finicky lunatics who stuck newspaper articles and internet printouts to the walls of their mother's basements, creating glue stick by glue stick and thumbtack by thumbtack their own single-use universes, but such tracts, such philosophies, rarely seemed as melancholy or as simultaneously earthy and ethereal as these sentences. Like if someone or something is trying to jam information inside your head, using words you understand but a meaning you don't, like it's not even that it's not like on a bandwidth you can receive, but like it's much worse. Like if the message were a knife and it like created its meaning by cutting into meat and your head is, you know, kind of the receiver and like the tip of that knife is being shoved into your ear over and over again. <laughs> if you quacked like a scientist and waddled like a scientist, soon to non-scientists you became the subject under discussion and not a person at all. <laughs> Abuela to Bishop Seven as a move had set them both to giggling. According to a labyrinthine hierarchical chart that resembled several thick snakes fucking each other, the Southern Reach was under the Army's jurisdiction here, which might be why the Southern Reach facility closed down between expeditions looked like a bit like a row of large tents that had been made of lemon rang frosting, which is to say it looked like any number of the richer Southern Baptist church control had been familiar with in his teenage years, usually because of whatever girl he was dating. <laughs> There's a sequence in here where control has not had lunch, and everything that he sees looks like some kind of food item in comparison. <laughs> um, well, it's the high ceilings, isn't it? It makes you thing, see things aren't there. It makes the things you do look, see look like other things. A bird can be a bat. A bat can be a piece of floating p plastic bag. Way of the world to see things as other things. Bird leaves, bat birds, shadows made of, made of light, sounds that are incidental but seem more significant. Never going to seem any different wherever you go. The truth was, if the man who had looked like the high school quarterback had turned into something monstrous and torn him out into the night, part of control wouldn't have minded, because he would have been much closer to the truth about Area X, and even if the truth was a fucking maw, a fanged maw that stank like a cave full of putrefied corpses, that was still closer than he was now. Now he would inhabit the very center of corridors. He would put no hand to any surface. He would behave like a ghost that knew if it made contact with anyone or anything, its touch would slide through, and that creature would then know that it existed in a state of purgatory. This is a box full of accusations, Grace said, holding it toward him like an offering. With this jewelry box, I thee despise. <laughs> 
The screaming had gone on and on toward the end. The one holding the camera hadn't seemed human. Wake up, he had pleaded with the members of the first expedition as he watched. Wake up and understand what is happening to you. But they never did. They couldn't. They were miles away, and he was more than 30 years too late to warn them. A pale creature was crouched in front of the shelves of his supplies, revealed under the sharp light of a single low-swinging light bulb. An unbearable yet putific agony deformed its features. You can stand up and almost ready. <laughs> Megalodon mad. Megalodon not happy. Megalodon have tantrum. <laughs> ready? Ready. Then there was a slight movement, and a hand came to rest on the back of his head, just resting there, palm flat, <laughs> the fingers spread like a starfish, and slowly moved back and forth, petting Control's head. So you may think that authority is perhaps a novel about too many things, but um, trust me when I say that it all works. <laughs> and, and thank you, Greg, for, for participating in that. So. Um, so there you have it. A very confusing preview of the second two books. Um, do you have any questions or concerns? Uh, <laughs> any? So what, what government agency did you work for? I really can't talk too much about it, but I worked for a, a, a company that actually contracted with a lot of uh, state and then some other agencies. and. Um, one thing I really love about what I was able to do in control, I mean, just from a writer's point of view, of like it was just kind of cool, was uh, all the different types of technology because a lot of government agencies they have like the modern stuff, but then they're also using like DOS databases and they have like some some antiquated you know huge ass monitor and shoved away on some part of the desk, and it's kind of like when you go to a city and there's a 16th century cathedral or rundown dilapidated cathedral and a <laughs> and a skyscraper right next to one another, and so I, I tried to do those juxtapositions because I don't really see them enough in. In, in novels to, to acknowledge kind of that it doesn't it's not that new tech wipes away the old tech it all just kind of becomes this you know thing so any other questions concerns I see almost a raised hand I don't know if that's or that's a puppet sign or <laughs> oh the, yeah I guess not yes I'm actually curious why, why you chose I mean, I've read the first one I haven't read mm -hmm. the second two yeah. uh, why you chose such different I mean your voices in yeah. each one very specific very different what, why, what was your process well, the characters determine the voice. And obviously in the first one, it's a first-person account. So it's a journal entry, basically. And, and so that's going to be vastly different from, from a third person. And then in the, the one in control, it had to be flexible enough to include some fairly horrific stuff, but then also some very dark humor. And um, a lot of, some of those things you heard were like dialogue. Uh, and I worked really hard on the dialogue in book two. Uh, so that the characters are very differentiated and have their own styles. Like the one going on about Birdleaf, he's, he's a guy who just can't really stick to the point. And uh, he's one of the scientists, so every time Control asks him a question, he winds up down the rabbit hole somewhere else. Um, and, and so I had a lot, of, a lot of fun with that. I'm going to have a lot of fun reading from it. And then in the third one, it kind of reconciles the two, the two voices. Um, you have the director who's whose voice you heard is second person uh, to differentiate from, from other threads that are in third and first. Because I, what I hate more than anything are books that are written in like, there's like seven, five or six characters and they're all in first person. <laughs> it's really hard to like differentiate and becomes samey. So I, the, I, I pulled it out that way. But um, 
yeah, it, it, it all comes together. <laughs> One hopes. Just, just trust. <laughs> just, just trust in annihilation and authority and acceptance. <laughs> there are also a lot of bunnies that get killed in book two. I just want you to know that right now. Or disappeared Redacted. off screen. Redacted. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Authority comes out in May and acceptance comes out in September. Um, I guess if they if they do well enough, if, if enough of you folks buy them, there might be an omnibus at some point. Uh, I like them being separate because they are very separate and distinct novels, as you can kind of tell from the, the tone mm -hmm. of the voice. And I'm not sure that it would have been a good idea to put them out as a huge omnibus because actually the second two novels, each of them is about a hundred thousand words. So that looks like it's going to be you know some slim books, but. Uh, but the second one and the third one got a little more um, complex <laughs> as I followed the characters uh, than I thought they were going to be. So, mm -hmm. can I ask you a question about Hollywood, or is that um, You can ask me about Hollywood. Yeah, Paramount Pictures and Scott Rudin bought the movie rights to the to the trilogy, and so um, will they will there be like one movie covering all three, or will there be three movies? My understanding is they're going to do three movies, and they might also. I mean, they've also bought things like miniseries rights and things like that so you know the Southern Reach having a 30-year history you could do a side thing if you wanted right. to with with all of that mm. uh, but my understanding is they're gonna do three movies and I should have news on how that's advancing in the next week or two but I can't really say now but it is definitely advancing so no, I would never do that. I, 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 I actually think that these books as movies need to be restructured because like that's a first person experience and movies are a third person experience and so structurally you probably start out in a different point um, to orient the reader in a different, I mean the viewer in a different way. Hmm. <laughs> yes? You want to rub my head again? <laughs> Sorry. <I'm> <laughs> Well, you know, it's really funny. Um, I get this a lot, and, and in some of the reviews, I was kind of wondering why I was getting this. And I thought, oh, yeah, you wrote three books that had a lot of fungus in them. Because um, here, it's kind of just a trigger in this, in this one, and I didn't really feel like it was um, uh, that big a deal. Uh, but uh, there was no triggering event. It's just that, you know, we live on a kind of an alien planet where we don't even know all the species that are here yet, and we, we probably only know maybe... 70% if that of, of the kinds of uh, fungi that are on this planet and um, and so I find it just a fascinating subject because they're also very complex uh, organisms and we, we really don't know as much as we think about them I mean they just discovered that plants use quantum mechanics in part to photosynthesis in photosynthesis you know and, and so it's like we think that we know what's going on around us but you know the, the your average everyday weed uh, may be employing more sophisticated techniques than you with your cell phone down the street, you know, or your smartphone. So, um, so I find all that really interesting, and that that's kind of juxtaposed a lot in the series. Uh, the second two books don't have any fungus in them at all, as far as I can. Okay, make up your mind. No fungus, fungus. What do I need to write? Fungal and non-fungal versions of everything. Like, okay. Yes. We uh, we celebrated uh, William S. Burroughs' hundredth mm. birthday this week, and. And it kept coming up over and over again. Of, he has this idea that 
that language really operates a little bit like a virus. Mm -hmm. And could you address that? Because you've written a book on, on you know, writing and right, stuff right. like that. I was wondering if you have some thoughts about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know that I can add anything to what Burroughs has said, but, um, but most definitely we actually play around with that in authority uh, where they're speculating on these words on the wall that they find that are made of, of living matter. And uh, and they have these. They've been batter, batting, bashing their heads against this because they're still using analogies and metaphors that are human based. So they don't know really what this language means, or if it's just a conduit. Like if language to whatever's in area X isn't conveyed through words at all. Um, and also that question of whether they're being infected just by reading it. Um, and uh, then there's the whole issue of the hypnosis that goes on in here, where there's a suggestion at a certain point that Southern Reach may have found something in Area X that allows us to, them to enhance this process, but does that also mean that it's also kind of um, been, you know, corrupted from the very beginning because of that? Um, uh, so there's a lot going on about that, and and I didn't want to like have like things re related to social media and whatnot in there, but obviously we become very suggestible. We definitely have idea viruses that overtake us all the time because of the, 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 the quantity of information out there and misinformation and, and you'll see people on Facebook get taken up by something that they've read and suddenly that's all they're really spouting about for like six months until they, they kind of either normalize or, or it's not their obsession anymore but I think we're very, we're at a point where if you want to be cynical and you want to try to manipulate people it's much easier uh, through language just through you know, Twitter and everything than before. Uh, but yeah, there's some literalization of that in the in the other books, and anything else I would say would be a spoiler. But but there's definitely I was thinking about Burroughs a little bit on some of that stuff. Okay, well thank you very much. I guess I'll sign Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.